Okay, fantastic. We have another interview then today with Peter Constantine today, who is a legend in the British martial arts field. Um, thank you very much for coming on, Peter. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great. It's a um, nice way to uh, connect at the moment, Dan. So, yeah, looking forward to it. Fantastic. Good. So you are obviously, as we've already said, quite a legend in the British martial arts field in terms of combat, in terms of real world combat and in terms of karate as well. So how did you first get started in the martial arts? It's probably one of the most common questions you've ever been asked. It is, and it gets harder <laughs> to remember as the years go by as well, Dan, because it's gone back a long way. So so I was 16, I was 15 and that was 1964. Sure. And I saw an advert for what was then really, seemed quite esoteric really. It was like, it was something like learn to kill with one easy blow. Right, which I think okay. you could get away with in the Manchester Evening News in those sure. days. And it was a karate club in um, a place called Ancote, which is just near the city centre of Manchester. Yes. And it was run by uh, then Danny Connor, who became a very close friend of mine, and also a guy called Martin Stott, who'd been training when he was in Paris with uh, a karate guy called Tam Maitho. Okay. And it was a bit of a modified, I think it was like a Shotokan Wado. But very, very soon in 1964 was the start of, of what was the ABKA, the Association, Associated British Karate Association, sure. and uh, which eventually became the BKA. But that was the whole group of Wado clubs in the UK that uh, eventually Tatsuo Suzuki, Schmidt, and the other very early Japanese in the UK were the chief instructors of DAM. Yeah. So, for, so from 64 through to 69, um was was wado uh, became the first time in wado and then in 69 ish most of the northern clubs which were then being run by roy stanhope most of those northern clubs became the foundation for the shukakai karate union which is when we we all switched to shukakai with uh kimura sensei and tani um so that was the very early start and from 60 Seven, sixty-eight onwards. That was probably the start of the uh, teams, the English and Great Britain squad yeah. appearances over the next eight years or so. Yeah. What was it with, that initially attracted you to the martial arts then? Because um, fifteen, sixteen, in relative terms, yeah. is fairly late-ish to start. I suppose most people when they start, kind of eight, nine. You know. Yeah, it wasn't then. I, I actually, it was difficult for me to join. Okay. Um, there weren't kids doing it then, Dan. Um, I had to convince them that I would, would hack it. Sure. And I was 15 and they were very reluctant to take me on. Right. Um, so it was just the crying and screaming and rending of garments that forced them into it. Um, <laughs> but no, there were no kids then. I was the youngest person. Most of the people in the class were sort of had fought in the Korean bloody war, Dan. Right. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. So I started at 15, I was teaching at 16. So I was teaching the beginners at 16 and I've sort of been teaching ever since really, one thing yeah. or another. How did you find it then being one of the youngest in the club and, and kind of, yeah, going into that environment? Yeah, it was, it was intimidating um, and no quarter given, you know, yeah. to anybody really. That was, nobody, nobody knew how to teach. Um, 
we just copied the Japanese. And I've always had um, a concept about that. When I look at students, I can usually tell, or I used to be able to tell in the old karate days, who their instructor was. Yeah. And equally, you could then tell who their instructor was. Yeah. Because nobody, nobody deconstructed techniques. We just copied people. We copied the Japanese. Sure. Um, and I've always had this concept that, well, the problems with that was because we never learned to deconstruct techniques, mm. certainly until we got to the Shukakai Dan, where it was a totally different attitude to how the, the, the martial arts were given to us as our own thing to break down and understand. Um, what, what happened when we were aping the Japanese, we, we simply copied and then people copied us and people copied. So we end up like a poor photocopy. Yeah. So eventually the system becomes, and this is one of the complaints I've always had, the system becomes poor. And we also, and it still happens today, where you have instructors who won't answer questions. Mm. So we, we had the same attitude. Japanese wouldn't answer questions. They wouldn't answer frigging questions because they didn't speak English. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Forget that. We couldn't ask them questions, so they didn't answer them. So, sure. you know, we just copied what they did, and we and then we delivered that way, which was really poor when you think about it. Yeah. So that was and that same attitude prevails in a lot of the traditional crafts mm -hmm. in the UK. Don't ask me a question; I'm in charge. I'll just tell you what to do. Sure. It's 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 inappropriate. It's not right, Dan. So. Yeah. When did that change then? So you mentioned about the Shukakai and the formation of that. Yeah, when, when, we, when we had uh, Kimura, Tsuguru Kimura as our chief instructor in the SKU, and he had a totally different way of teaching the physicality of, apart from all the dynamic things he was doing, the double hit, kick, shock, other really innovative physiological ways of teaching sure. we spent as much time with kimura with him in front of the blackboard okay. drawing chalk figures yeah. as we did on the on the dojo floor with him so the, the theory and the practice then yeah the theory and the practice and very open very anglicized very open happy to engage totally mm -hmm. different you know and then that became that became a bit of a um, you know, a light bulb moment for me. You know, I've had a few, but that was one where you realise how wrong it was the way we've been doing it before. So that was the that particular point. Okay, fantastic. Let's talk a little bit about your competition days then. So you said the 60s and 70s was, yeah. was your competition. Um, yeah. Am I right in thinking it was about eight years that you spent competing? Uh, oh, no, competing all, all told. Um, yeah. on, on the Great Britain and England squads, probably about eight years. Yeah. And I think the last time I fought internationally on the English team was 74 at Crystal Palace in the Europeans. Okay, fantastic. But at that point then, I was starting to switch over to the full contact. Sure. Which, and one of the first competitions that was organised was by Danny Connor, which is the first sort of full contact karate um, competition in the UK. So for a couple of years, I was doing the full contact. Um, but before that, 10 years or more of normal karate competitions including sure. the english and great britain side of things what made you decide to switch to the full contact then and how did your training have to adapt to it or yeah change? i think it was a combination of things really i'd always so that would have been about 1976 but my great influence outside of the karate was danny connor who when I had been training in the Wado with him for about two or three years, he left the UK for the Far East. 
Okay. Started in Japan doing the karate, left that and spent a lot of time in China doing the Chinese. Sure. So came back with the Wing Chun, with a lot of Tai Chi, with a lot of other systems, and a huge number of connections within that, that Chinese fraternity, sure. uh, both here and, and in the Far East. Um, he came back, uh, started Oriental World, which became the epicentre of martial arts in the north of England, the shop, and, and Danny himself, really. Uh, so I got that Chinese influence going on. Yeah. So at that time, 1970, I'd started working the doors in Manchester, mm -hmm. realising that the distance I was used to having engagements that didn't work. Yeah. But by then I'd got the wind churn, so I was incorporating that. Danny was going to start doing the full contact competitions and sponsoring those. So we got the boxing coming into it, the wind churn, the door work, and the foundation of karate, and particularly the Shukakai, which gave me that above normal impact down. It gave me that one-shot capability yeah. that I always wanted in karate, but it never gave me till the Shukakai. So it was that mix of things, um, mix of influences by people that sort of put that ball of wax together at the time. Yeah. And did you enjoy being on the competitive circuit then? Did it, did it suit your style? Did it suit your temperament, your, your way of training? Um, it suited my way of training. It, if I go back to the original karate competitions, which were the Shobu Ippon, that didn't suit my style. Okay. Um, I'm a nervous fighter. Okay. Always was. So, uh, and I very soon realised that if you're a very nervous fighter, you may not be good at waiting to defend. Sure. So I became an explosive attacking fighter. But in the old show whip on days with half a point if somebody could pick it off you you spent the next minute and a half just chasing them around the map yeah. so when we got to show Sambon, where i got three points to play with well that was like gotta come down from the heavens and bless the map we we're on <laughs> um, so it opened it up as an attacking I, I was able to to maximize my sort of strategy really which was an attacking strategy um and the full contact suit my way of training because we've always I've always had a very heavy um, inclination to hard training. Mm -hmm. So that's been one of the foundations, really. How important do you think hard training is in the martial arts then? Because there's a, there's a, a wide spectrum of martial arts from those that want to do it for just health and benefit. There's those who want to yeah. do self-defense. Like, do you need yeah. the hard training regardless? No, no, not at all. No, I, and, and I've got a couple of concepts of, on that. One is, is the, the hub of the wheel. So if you take the hub as being that martial arts that you're doing um and i don't criticize whatever anybody wants from that hub if you look down the different spokes yeah so if you look down the spokes exactly as you've just articulated health fitness competition yeah self-improvement you know pride in performance yeah. full contact self-defense all of that can emanate down those spokes not one is wrong or right it just suits the individual yeah. um but if you go down that full contact if you go down that self-defense route then hard fitness is an absolute fundamental part of that yeah karate to an extent has been a hiding place for fitness so if you look at judo um you can't do that without being fit yeah. you can't be a competitive judo player without being absolutely at your top fitness think, yeah. karate is a bit of a hiding place for that why do you think it's the hiding place? Well, I think it's, you know, I'm not being unkind and I'm not, um, 
as I say, it's not pejorative, but um, people can say that they're doing martial arts without doing martial arts. You can go to a karate class, it's social, you enjoy it, it's a bit of a sweat, but it's not martial in that truest sense. So, but that's fine, you know. Again, it's a spoke, so I'm not critical of it, but you have to put things in perspective. Do you think that's changed in recent years from kind of the 60s, the 70s, up through the 80s? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. In what way? Do you think the hard trains become less or more or yeah, different? Yeah, no, the hard trains become less. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's not a contrarian view, but it, commercialism, you know, yeah. when, when you are a full-time instructor these days, and I'm not saying supplies across the board, but many classes that you see are not hard classes. Yeah. They won't keep students. They can't do what they'd like to do. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, it's a halfway house for that training. Uh, do you think the commercialization is a good thing for the martial arts then? Or do you think it depends whose hands it's in? It's not good or bad. You yeah. can have great you can have great instructors and great students coming out of the most commercialized martial arts groups. Yeah. You can have poor students and poor instructors in in clubs that charge five pence an hour and you can have poor students and poor instructors within commercial it's the quality isn't influenced by commercialism or not yeah hard training that you put students through may well because of these days a lot of you won't keep big classes if really they're breathing out of every orifice (laughs) or create new ones yeah Yeah. (laughs) as a broad Um, sweep though yeah yeah um let's talk about the wing chun then so what led you to start the wing chun as well then and then you went to china and trained you yeah danny connor yeah he came back with it uh we used to do it um i then started having private lessons with sam kwok yes i was sam's first indoor student when he was still not full-time living over in Blackpool. I used to travel over there. Um, Dan used to bring Simon Lau up to Manchester from London, train with Alan Lam. And then Danny and I were out in Hong Kong. That would be the late eighties training with Ip Chun. And then I stayed, uh, Danny came back and I stayed there training with Ip Chun as private lessons and also on his club in the new territories on a Friday night. So that Wing Chun, and I, I adapt with Wing Chun to what we do now so we adapted to boxing to sure. contact door everything yeah it's a good what system was what was it about the wing chun that you liked then what what attracted you to it well first of all it gave me a distance that karate didn't in a way not yeah. that karate didn't have that distance but it, I, I didn't have that right distance when i was working the door from competitive karate sure. so my conflicts in karate were competitive conflicts taking place at that nice distance and the door I worked on for eight years in Manchester we were face to face almost so no no flags no bells no whistles no marks on the floor where people were had to stand so the winchun and also it it's that sensitivity that you can play with people with it you know and feel what's going on so it was a perfect adjunct practically and also it's great to do love the wing chun yeah good um why did you decide to go on the doors then was it a was it an open decision was it something that you wanted to test um yeah. how did it come about yeah it um i was always in nightclubs 
Okay. <laughs> even, even as an adolescent, I was in nightclubs. Sure. Um, but I, I just wasn't convinced that what I had and knew would work in reality. Mm-hmm. So it was that culture dish down. Sure. I wanted to test it. So, and I hadn't planned on staying in the game as long as I did. Mm-hmm. As I said, it was eight years on just one door. Yeah. And for six years, that it was four nights a week. Yeah. As well as having a full time occupation as well. So, okay. Yeah. Um, Lots of experience then, yeah. 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 And how did it stand up then? How did how did you have to adapt it? Did you have to adapt it? What you learned towards um, a more street environment as opposed to a competition environment? How yeah. did they marry? Yeah, they they don't. Um, most of the self defence you see from the martial arts is martial arts in jeans. Sure. It's not real. It's how they think things will happen, mm-hmm. and it doesn't work like that. You know, if most of the self-defense that you see are like what people would say are practical fighting skills. Well, if you're in a fight, you've done something wrong in the first place. The only thing that works at that distance where engagements in the streets or a door take place, they're within touching distance, pretty much. And whoever starts it wins it. Action beats reaction. There's no two ways about it. And what I came to realize very quickly was if I didn't start it, I wouldn't be the one that would finish it. Yeah. So preemptive. Yeah, the preemptive strike then. Preemptive strikes, absolutely. At yeah. the point where you knew that conflict was was reaching a point of inevitability. Yeah. So you knew where it was going. Yeah. You just had to be the one that, that stopped it. So I always considered it tactical intervention. Yeah. And fighting's a lottery. Real fighting's a lottery. You could trip over something. Yeah. There's always a faster gun in town. It's yeah. the Dodge City syndrome. You might be a good gunfighter, but there's going to be a faster one, a more accurate one, will ride into town. Yeah. So there'll be better fighters than me in town, but there probably wouldn't be anybody better at preemption than me in yeah. town. That was the concept, really, Dan. Is that the main thing that you learned then over those those eight years and those numerous experiences that I'm sure you had? The yeah, preemptive well, concept? Or? Yeah, that, that is a concept, the physicality of it, but then the psychology of it. You know, the fact you need action triggers because what you suddenly realise is you're there in front of somebody, somebody who's really aggressive and it's building up and you know it's going one way and you're trying to make decisions, particularly if you come from the martial arts where blocking is a concept mm-hmm. and self-defence is a concept which by terminology puts you on the back foot yeah. because you're talking about defence. Yeah. So you're almost waiting for it to happen and then some sort of high level skills will come into play but decision making will be flawed because of a lot of physiological changes that go on and you have to understand that so you have to appreciate that at times of great stress we're not geared to make decisions our brain our system doesn't want us making decisions it wants fight or flight it wants us to either engage and that's what we're gearing up for with all the physiological and psychological changes or it wants us to get out of there it doesn't want some cognitive mechanisms going on yeah. to decide when to act. And that's what I realised. I was weighing up all the consequences. What will happen with this? Will this work? Should I wait for this? Will he punch? Will he kick? Will he headbutt? Will he knee? Will he? And all of a sudden you realise, got to stop all that. And then come up with what I termed action triggers, which was that 
primary conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning where I had to associate that strike and I associated it with a word yeah. which I brought into conversation. So you have a word which you have conditioned through massive repetition to, to bring that strike out that you need at the right time. So there's a whole host of things. Really the physical side of it was the tip of the iceberg. Sure. All the other issues underneath it are vast. What was and that's the word? what we missed out when we hear and see people doing. There's only two. Um, we see less of it now. I'm talking about martial arts magazines because we haven't got any anymore. Yeah, but in the days when we had, and we used to have self-defense sequences, and a sequence would start on page six at the top, <laughs> and we'd have yeah. a succession of photographs that carried on to page eight. Yeah. And you think, what? Oh, that? There should only be two photos. There should only be two photographs. The first one with two people standing like that. The second <laughs> photograph should be the person doing that. <laughs> Keep it simple. Simple yeah. as that. Yeah. What was your Pavlovian word? Can't tell you. I'd have to dive at the screen. Fair enough. <laughs> Mine was luck. Okay. Mine was luck. So, so what I used to say was luck. And I emphasised it with a gesture, which was a gesture of relaxation. So when I said to him, luck, and I went like this, psychologically, they go as well. So there you can you almost hear them, slight exhalation. Mm -hmm. And from that, you bounce off into the, into the Yeah, Not always. Sometimes it just came out. Um, there's a thing, I used to do, I was a competitive pistol shooter for many years as well. Okay. And there's a concept uh, that's called, caused this, it's called the surprise break. And when you start doing pistol work, uh, and you've got the two sights on a pistol and you have the this target you're after and you're trying to get all these things aligned which you can't do visually you can't do it but you try and do it and then when you think it's right you pull the trigger um, and it goes all over the place and you have a thing called the surprise break which is that you are slightly moving towards a thing and without realizing almost you fire the round off and yeah. it's caused a surprise break rather than an anticipatory trigger pull and that's what preemptive strikes get like yeah. all of a sudden you do it and didn't realize you'd done it. it it's a surprise break that's what you should be after as a concept excellent can you replicate that then in the dojo in the academy can you replicate it how can you replicate it yeah well the pavlovian conditioning one of, one of the things when um when you're doing bag work so we, you, you can say, all right, well, I'll practice all the strikes. I didn't have many. You've got to, and that's the problem about martial arts. So let me go back to the hub concept for a minute, Dan. So you've got the hub, which is your martial art, and you've got all the spokes. But let me go into a box concept. So now you've got this big box, and in that are all the martial arts that you do that you've mixed together. Like the soap, could be karate, wing chun, boxing, could be a few other things in there. Yeah. And, and then... One of the problems that martial artists and instructors make when it comes to self-defense is um, they think, well, I've got 8,000 techniques in here, so I'll, I'll, I'll use all those for self-defense. No bollocks. You've got smaller boxes now around that big box. So let's say it's full contact. Then out of that box, you take certain techniques and attributes for full contact. Sure. You take certain ones for the tip you're on, competition, and you take a very small amount of that martial arts for the self-defense side of things and the practical yeah. and that's the problem where you see a lot of self-defense done by martial arts instructors they just take too much out and mm. think all that's going to work 
So first of all, what I learned on the door was chop down, chop down, chop down, chop down. So you're back to that decision making again. You've got the concept that I learned on the door and knew too much. And, it, and it's, there's a terminology for it that you know in psychology, which is paralysis by analysis. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I use the hourglass concept for that. So if you think of an hourglass, the old typical hourglass that you turn over, sure. 8 million grains of sand in this one, you turn it over on that top one. But 8 million can't get through. Only one gets through that thin neck. Yeah. And that's what I had. I had that hourglass with 8,000 martial arts techniques in it. I only needed one, yeah. but they all wanted to get through that neck. They just jammed it up. And sure. that's why I realized I had to chop down and chop down. So I just had one technique for different situations and physicality. Um, so when you come back now to training those on a bag, and I've seen people who've got that concept, they're training it, but the one thing they never do on the bag, which is, which is the absolute, if nothing else happens in a confrontation, the one thing that does is dialogue. Yeah. You never get somebody in front of you who's going to kick off, who just stands there and goes mute. Yeah. They're always going to I can say something to you. So what you have to have in your box of tricks are pre-prepared dialogue, scripts for a whole range of situations. And that you should practice on the bag. You should talk to the bag because it's an opponent. But we don't do it. Boxers don't talk to the bag, they hit it. Karate people don't talk to the bag, they hit it. People who are doing self-defense techniques don't talk to the bag. But it's the integral thing that will happen in any conflict with somebody. There will be dialogue usually if it's one of those building up situations. So it's the dialogue in many ways which becomes their theater that they want to shut you down with. They want to use aggression, invective, dialogue, to try and shut you down. So you've got to inure yourself to that. Practice your dialogue, be able to deflect it. And then within that dialogue, you bring in your trigger. Yeah. It might be, if you look at my old partner in the British Combat Association, Jeff Thompson, yeah. he'd come up with the same concept. Totally different experience, karate yeah. background, boxing background, but he used a question. So he used a question to engage their brain. And it didn't matter how ridiculous the question was. Ask anybody a question, and even if they don't want to answer it, the brain's subconsciously engaged. Sure. And that's when he hit. So yeah. that's, but you have to practice it, Dan. Sure. Because it's Pavlovian, it's, it's primary conditioning. conditioning. It yeah. doesn't happen if you do it 10 times. Yeah. You have to do it a thousand times or 10,000 times. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that word or whatever it is, it could be a gesture, is linked with then the strike that you're going to do. Perfect. Fantastic. Um, you mentioned Jeff then. So yeah. when did you first meet Jeff and, and how did you to start partnering up for what would yeah. be the, the BCA? Yeah. So it, so the BCA this year, I think it's 27 years. Yeah. And at that time I was uh, living in Huddersfield, training with Bob Sykes yeah. and his brother, Tony Sykes, we were training five, six, seven times a week. Um, he was editor of Martial Arts Illustrated and I was writing for him and he got uh, half of a manuscript of a book by a karate guy in Dorman from Coventry. Okay. Because I worked the door, I had worked the doors, um, he phoned me up and said, look, I've had this manuscript in, let me send it to you, read it. He said, I don't know anything about it. Anyway, I read it. It was in its very early stages. 
but loved every minute of it, the humour, the situations. Sure. So I phoned Jeff up and said, I'd like to meet and I'd like to do an interview because I think the book's great. Yeah. So he came up, we met, um, interviewed him, got on really well, surprising putting those experiences together again, Down that we'd yeah, come to conclusions about karate, about martial arts, about conflict. And it was at that point in time where I'd been chief instructor of the British Karate Association, my old association, but I didn't want to do the self-defense within that because it was purely karate. Okay. So I, I needed to set a new box up um, and thought that Jeff would be somebody who would go somewhere, who would just take off, yeah. given the right circumstances and a box within which he could do that. So I phoned him up and said, would he like to be co-chief instructor in this new practical self-defense martial arts association? Yeah. And that was it. I'd water and stand back down after that. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Just took off. Yeah. How's the BCA evolved then over the past 26, 27 years, however? Yeah. So it, it, it hasn't evolved. You know, in, in strict terms, the philosophy we started it with, few rules, yeah. Nice people, um, helpful, a network, well-managed, responsive, hasn't changed. Yeah. It's exactly the same. If I go back to the philosophy I wanted it to have, it hasn't changed. We're responsive to people, we're helpful, we've got a great network, we've got nice people. I yeah. don't want, I don't know how talented somebody is, I don't want the ego to be tipping over the front of the skis with them. That's the philosophy and it hasn't changed. Uh, 11, 12 years ago, I spun off the karate side of it. So we had the British Combat Karate Association, uh, which we joined to the English Karate Federation and the Scottish governing body so that we could give those students who were competitive a route through to the world karate competitions. Yeah. Um, but some of the karate still, still is within the BCA. Um, we've got new people within the karate side of it. And then about six, seven years ago, we started the World Combat Association, yeah. which is like the BCA abroad. It's the international version of it. And we've got some great people all over Europe, Germany. And Ian Abernethy is our point man for the WCA, given all his international teaching, Dan. So, um, do you yeah. find it difficult then to keep that consistency, to keep the organisation the way that you wanted it to? Obviously, you're successful at doing it, as you said, after 26, 27 years. Yeah. But it's difficult when organisations get bigger, some kind of slip through the net sometimes. Sometimes yeah. it has a tendency to kind of get bigger and you lose it. Um, yeah. It becomes a, yeah. Yeah, a bit of a rolling stone. Yeah, the size, the, the size, people, we always have people slip through the net. So... We've got, a, we've got a good policy for due diligence, for checking people who are coming in. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I'll prefer to err on the side of, I'll take a chance. Because once people are in, it, it won't suit them if they're of that mentality, yeah. if you know what I mean. It's, it's almost a self-selecting philosophy that goes on within it. True. Size just affects the admin. But that, as you may know yourself, you remember, Dawn yeah. gets things back within days. When yeah, yeah, very quick. Yeah. So 
you know, nobody's left waiting for student licenses, for insurance, for certificates. We've always had that. And we're at a level where she's still capable of doing that, you know, with my obvious help on that one, Dan. Of course. <laughs> so often, as little as humanly possible. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Um, the double hip action then, that you often, yeah. I've seen you speak about in videos. Yeah. Um, can you explain that concept a little bit for us? in terms yeah. of producing power. Uh, yeah, it's hard. It's a bit like, that would be a bit like if we turned all the sound off and I teach you to play a guitar. Sure, <laughs> it's, sure. Like, yeah. it's hard to do. Um, yeah, no, this was, this was started really by uh, Tani, who was Storyu, one of Mabuni's senior people, and then started Tani High and then Shukakai. And he, and then his senior instructor, Kimura, they'd been looking at other sports where, where, where it needed a dynamic effect between the hand, the arm, the hip, the shoulder and the body. And what they realised was there was no sport, whether you pick throwing a ball, tennis, javelin, golf, that linked the hand, the arm and the hip at the same time on a central axis, mm -hmm. like a revolving door. So what they tried to do was incorporate the same action that you were getting throwing a stone, say, or a shot put or a golf action where the hip would go backwards and then forwards. Yeah. The shoulder would go back with the hip, but not come forward at the same time. And it would create that whipping torque within the shoulder that transfers the body weight to the strike, whatever that might be. Could be a block, could be a strike, could be elbow. Same principle works for the legs. Um, so that as a con concept was contained within the karate in the Shukakai. But I took that to put it in practical situations yeah. and added it to other things like bits of Wing Chun. So Wing Chun with a double hip at the end of it. Um, so that we, and the whole concept I have now is whatever you're hitting with, that's basically just a tool. It's a tool to get body weight to the target. Yeah. And speed will often steal impact. Speed, the speed of the hand is fine and it might move at 200 mile an hour, but it can't have the body weight in it at that speed because the body can't move at that speed. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do is challenge that need for speed sometimes with still getting body weight to flow into whatever you're hitting with. Sure as best as I could explain it without the physicality of it. Yeah, good explanation, yeah. Um, how has your own training changed then over the many, many years that you've been, over decades that you've been training? Has it changed? Has it evolved? Has it adapted as you've got older, as times have moved on, as times have changed? Or are you nope. still just doing the same thing? Same thing, <laughs> same. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, same stuff. So my training, so I've got six times a week that I train. Yeah. Two of those are with my uh, group, my martial arts group, yeah. Thursday morning and then Sunday morning. Some of the same on Sunday from Thursday, a couple of other different ones. And that's been going on. That training group has been going on really unaltered from the um, 70s when, when I was in Manchester fighting full contact with people like Brian Seabright, Lance Lewis and others in that Manchester martial arts scene. That yeah. same training session, shield work, pad work, high intensity, um, heavy anaerobic distressing training. That's still the same. Challenging yeah. technique, 
uh, challenging the aesthetics of martial arts so it still has to look right has to have content and impact has to have complexity sometimes because we enjoy doing it isn't just practical um, so I've got two of those sessions um, three weight sessions and then a catch-up CV one that is just purely CV so um, like today it's been weights today uh, weights yesterday Thursday morning session Friday is shoulders on weights again Saturday is CV and catch up on anything I've missed Sunday is back to the normal Thursday session high-level martial arts and then Monday nothing yeah. so and that hasn't changed still hill sprinting so hay fever allowing sure. I'm getting to the point now where I won't be hill sprinting because the hay fever is just killing me when I'm out on the hills so yeah. but I'm doing this indoors anyway on machines so yeah, yeah. so really it hasn't changed how do you keep up that level of motivation is it just naturally um, in you is it just yeah it's it, it's habit really the way I've always done it um, like anybody if I'm training on my own it's hard so if I've just got myself to answer to, which is why I've always had my training groups and people. Yeah. So I, I just invite people to train, never charge anybody to train with me who comes on the training things. I want to create training partners. Sure. So that's my investment. It's a paternal sort of, not autocracy, but yeah. it's, um, you know, it's a win-win for us. So they get the training off me. I've got them as training partners. So like, under normal circumstances i'll commit that we're training at a certain time and i won't let anybody down yeah i won't be the one that lets anybody down yeah well, i don't make everyone not because i let people down because i have to be away working on the security side of things sure. so but i set the six down if i make five that's great if i make six it's great make five it's great four still okay you know because i'll make up for it and that that really hasn't changed down and the intensity level is still good yeah good What's your opinion then on the current um, the current climate of martial arts, the current state of martial arts? And um, what's your opinion on, on that as a general aspect? Yeah, it's a cure at seg. You know, there's good bits, yeah. there's some very good bits, there's some average bits, bad bits, and some very bad bits. Yeah. You know? um, the churning of the whole downgrade system is devalued. Yes. Yeah. You know, completely devalued. So, you know whatever that's worth, if it's worth anything at all. Why know. do you think that is? Is that commercialization again or? Yeah, no, it, it's, it's uh, um, you know, for better or worse, when we have that very autocratic style control of a system. Mm -hmm. So you look at Shotokan in the, in the UK, KUGB say, still there, still able to control the standards of grades within it. Yeah. Other associations, probably the same but then you've got the breakaway groups the breakaway associations where they suddenly realize well we could dish out downgrades every year yeah. you know we can have four-year-olds we've had people come to us where you've got four-year-old with the black belt yeah it's scary scary shit you know it's like so that whole unless you've come from a certain box where you know that that standard is maintained then pretty much worthless yeah. yeah so that's one aspect of it standards of teaching good bad indifferent poor great you know the whole spectrum yeah yeah the whole spectrum there's no there's no central control of it that can yeah. that can now 
monitor standards. Do so, you think there ever could be? No. No. Just too big and yeah. too varied and too... Too big, too fragmented. So people will say, right, um, we've got new legislation, we're going to control everybody doing karate. Mm -hmm. And they'll say, oh no, we don't do karate. Uh, we do combat karate mixed with MMA with... So we're not really karate. Sure. So everybody will slip underneath anything that was going to be controlled. So it's not possible. Okay. What about the future then of martial arts? What about the future for your training? What about the future for the industry? What do you think is going to happen in the next 5, 10, 15, 20? Yeah, I think first of all, if we work forward rather than look forward, if we work forward to that, you know, what's going to happen in this, in this near term? Yeah. Well, do you think, sorry, do you think that the coronavirus and COVID, etc., do you think that's changed the way that we're going we're gonna to do martial arts, the way that we practice martial arts for the foreseeable, or do you think it's going to change indefinitely? No, I think um, the couple of things are, I think, first of all, the survival of clubs. Yep. So if you look at, we've, we've got, and I can only ever throw my, my, my hat over a broad figure, but within the three associations, we've got around 800 instructors. Mm -hmm. Some of them are solo instructors, just doing private lessons, seminars. Others have got small clubs, large clubs. Yeah. Some are doing judo, some are doing Krav Maga, some are doing MMA. How many of those and their clubs will survive this? Yeah. We, we just don't know, because yeah. at, at the moment, the shutters have come down on it. Yeah. So when they're able to open again, and we know we can, they can now do private lessons in the open, I think, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that's the first edge of the wedge going in. When they start to be able to open clubs again, are they going to have to put crosses on the thing so that people will, will be able to block, will be able to touch each other? You know, it's yeah. not just our sport, any sport that has a contact to it, contact, it's not yeah. that same issue. So, you know, how will that affect clubs in the short term, you know, that, that need that income coming in from a, a certain number of people? Yeah. Um, I don't think it will affect if we look forward a year and we've not had a resurgence of the virus over this coming winter, yeah. whether or not we have a, an antidote for it, um, I think given 12 months from now, we'd just be teaching like we've been teaching. Yeah. It won't affect the teaching over the longer term. You know, yeah. The social distancing that we've got now is a myth. It's the creation. There's no science behind it. The science that they conducted in laboratories was at a meter. And even then it was doubtful people were passing it on at that distance. Mm -hmm. Two meters is just an invention. Mm -hmm. So once people twig that they've almost had the wool pulled over their eyes and frightened mm -hmm. to death over this, yeah. and people start to get back to some sort of normality, I think 12 minutes from now, fingers crossed, we'll be doing what we were doing. Fingers crossed, definitely, yeah. As you said, it just depends what happens in the next month, two months, three months, etc. Yeah. 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 But we'll see. Yeah. Right. Thank you very much then, Peter. It's really good to talk to you as always. Yeah. You're an absolute yeah. gentleman, so thank you. Yeah. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah, and say hello to everybody from me, Dan. And good to talk. Thank you. Great. Take care. Bye bye.